Mac Power Users, episode 519, Workflows with Greg Pierce. Hello, everyone. This is David Sparks, along with my pal, Mr. Stephen Hackett. How are you today, Stephen? Oh, good, David. How are you? I, you know, I don't know how to explain it, but I kind of feel like I'm in the groove again. It's the new year, always, you know, holiday hangover and all that stuff. But I'm I'm just rocking today. I'm looking forward to it. Good. You still uh, in love with your new computer? It's very nice. I can touch the handle. There it is. Very nice. It's uh, <laughs> it's treating me well. Well, we are not alone today. Uh, we have a guest on the show, someone who's been on the list a long time, and we're so happy to have him here. Welcome to the show, Greg Pierce. Hi. Thanks for having me. Greg is, if you don't know, the developer of the Drafts application. It's a uh, one of my favorite apps on the iPhone because it it was just an app that could only exist on the iPhone, and I just love the idea that you did with that app, Greg. But we're not going to just talk about drafts today. Where Greg is also an independent businessman, he has a very interesting story about where he got where he is, and he's a nerd. So we got a lot to cover today. You okay with that, Greg? Yeah, absolutely. Good. As is obligatory on the Mac Power users, we have to start with um, talking about your gear. So what are you using now? Well, I am right now staring at an iMac Pro, which I just acquired, I guess, back in August timeframe. Um, it's the base model. I only upgraded the, the SSD, and it's been spectacular. Uh, great computer, does everything I need and doesn't complain about any of it. Um, and it's been an interesting transition because I, for decades now, have been a laptop-only guy, o- always hooked up to a large monitor at a desk, but uh, it- it's been a little bit of a different uh, way for me to work. And I'm still kind of finding my comfort zone uh, for mobility with the laptop and stuff. But the uh, iMac Pro has been amazing. You know, one thing you said there that I think that all users could benefit from is upgrading the SSD when you buy a new computer. Like this iMac Pro I have has a two gigabyte SSD, so I did upgrade it. And it would have been prohibitive to make it four gigabytes at the time. But I'm guessing I've got maybe another five years in this computer. And I know that I'm going to regret not having that additional storage in the future. Yeah, I I mean, in the past, I was a person who was never afraid to pop open a machine and upgrade things like a hard drive, but it's just not really something you can do anymore. So yeah, and I've got like an external SSD duct taped and screwed into the back of this computer. Steven (laughs) loves it, but it's not the same as having it internal storage. No, it's not as convenient. And I mean, I have also back behind this iMac Pro, a couple of external drives hooked up and I archive to those and things, but it's hard to beat, you know, having plenty of working space, especially nowadays with photo libraries getting so large and, and it not being convenient to store them at other places. Yeah. And also not really being a person who trusts Apple to optimize my storage, uh, in a way I'm going to be happy with, um, making sure I have enough local internal storage is it's a pretty big deal. I had a I had a fit of guilt over my uh my gaff taped hard drive mm-hmm. and I, I went looking in fact I was texting Stephen at the time I went looking for a good long USB C cable with the idea I could run it under the table and put this drive out of sight. But you know if you have high data or fast data um transfer needs through a USB C cable 
I don't know that you can find a six meter long one. I, I, I couldn't find one. If someone knows, let me know. We'll put it in a feedback show. But the um but I you know, it's hard finding real fast cables for these drives. So Greg, what uh what prompted this change from notebook life to a desktop? Well, it was kind of hardware failure and kind of uh, <laughs> professional. Uh, so I have uh, the one of the uh, butterfly keyboard uh, 15-inch laptops. Mm-hmm. I've been mostly pretty happy with it. I almost always, uh, probably 80 to 90% of my time, I'm at my desk using a different keyboard anyway and, and stuff. So it hasn't been that much of a pain point for me. But the machine kind of took a dive this summer and I had had the problems with repeated keys and things, but again, cause I wasn't using it day in and day out. I didn't try to get anything done about it immediately, but then I had the battery swell on me mm. and I took it into Apple and they agreed to replace it for free. It was out of Apple care, but they did the repair. And since they were re- replacing the keyboard, the top assembly also included a new battery Um, So I kind of got both of those taken care of at the same time, but I was going to be out of commission for a couple of weeks. And I was also at the point that now that I was developing drafts for the Mac and uh, we were in the summer and I was needing to run Catalina betas and stuff, I just got to the point that I really needed to have more than one machine operational to be doing my work as well. So I decided it was time to take the leap um, and jump over to having one of each. Yeah. That makes sense. And, and, you know, the iMac Pro is just such an, an amazing machine. I I feel like every week I talk about it, so I won't go into a depth. But it's just, I don't know that I've ever heard the fan run in this machine. <laughs> and Swift compiles are not uh, known for their efficiency. And so I spend a lot of time compiling code on this thing, and it never really, uh, never complains about it. Yeah. The, the only downside is I used to have this tradition where like when i would start rendering screencasts i would go make a cup of tea you know maybe go outside for a little while i can't do that anymore because the little progress bar goes too fast it just Mm -hmm. just finishes and i can get back to work (laughs) darn that another excuse to take a break yeah (laughs) the the um there is a note you told me before we started recording and you and i've known each other for a while you've never shared this story with me greg but you told me, oh, by the way, Steve Jobs once gave me a laptop. True story, sort of. I mean, it makes it sound a little more extravagant than it was. But uh, the one and only WWDC that I've actually gone to, surprisingly, uh, was at the end of the 90s. I, I never remember if it was 98 or 99. I think probably 99. And uh, this was back at Moscone, and Steve Jobs did the keynote there. And their big hardware announcement that year was an upgrade to the PowerBook. It was the bronze keyboard model PowerBook G3, um, which was a nice new sleeker, thinner uh, upgrade to the old black PowerBooks. And during the course of that week, they announced during the keynote that they were going to give away 40 of them, one per hour over the course of the whole week of WWDC. And since the keynote is two hours long, Steve drew names from uh, a bin during the keynote and I was one of those names. So he called out my name, waved to me in the audience and and stuff. And did he literally give me the laptop? Well, no, it arrived in the mail six to eight weeks later when the, when the machines were actually (laughs) shipping. But, uh, you can find that video on YouTube of, uh, Steve, uh, calling out my name. 
And I mean, it was funny. They literally wheeled out the raffle cage with everybody's names in it and wheeled it around. And I think, I think maybe Phil stood there with him and, and wheeled the thing around and he pulled a name out of the hat. In a continuing effort to express our appreciation to you guys, we want you to have some of the first ones. And so we're going to have a giveaway. And uh, what we're going to do is during the course of this week at the developer conference, we're going to give away 50 of these new power books. <clears throat> and <clears throat> since you guys are top of the line, we're going to give away our top of the line. <clears throat> and what we're going to do, the way we're going to do this, is we're going to give one away every hour. One every hour. And we're going to do a drawing, and your name's going to be posted on the Internet Cafe, which is over there, once an hour, the winner's name. And we're going to go ahead and send, we're just going to send these to you. You should get them sometime next week. We'll pay postage. <laughs> so. I get the honor to give away the first one. All righty. I have all your names in here. All right. And the winner of the first power book is, oh, Steve Jobs. No. <laughs> The winner of the first power book is Richard Winkler. Is Richard here from Boulder, Colorado? Where is he? Is that him over there? Since I'm up here for two hours, I'm going to draw a second one. <coughs> All right. Second one. Greg Pierce from Advanced Lighting Technology from Argyle, Texas. Greg here. <clears throat> All right. Thanks, Greg. Congratulations. So those are our first two, and we're going to be drawing one of these every hour. So please check the Internet Cafe to see if you got lucky. All right. So you're now rocking two Macs, and... Uh... How is that? I mean, uh, I know it's been a while since you've run two machines, like syncing data and all that. Is it better or worse than you expected? Um, it's not as bad as I expected. The keeping things up to date on both of them is a, is a little bit of a pain. And I'm still adjusting to, I mean, for so many years, I have a sit-stand desk and I've always had a monitor on an arm mount. I've got the iMac Pro mounted on an arm now too. And I always had the laptop next to the screen on a stand had effectively used it as two monitors and drag things back and forth. And I can't do that anymore. I know there are ways I could make the laptop pretend to be another screen, but um, that that's been a bit of an adjustment. And yeah, when I'm ready to just jump and go and run up to the library to work for a while, I've, I've got to take some extra steps uh, more than just unplugging the laptop to make sure I've got what I need on it. But has not been too much of a pain point for me. And at times, it's no, it's really quite nice having the two separate machines where I can, you know, be doing. Well, really, I have three things going because I also have my iPad on the desk right below the 
iMac Pro that I go back and forth to. So it's a different flow, and I'm not sure I've totally figured it out, but it's not really been a pain either. So which iPad are you using? I have the 10.5-inch iPad Pro, and, uh, you know, I have not upgraded to the current generation, but it serves my needs. I'm not an iPad-first guy for much of anything, but it is pretty much the computer I use away from my desk around the house and such. I don't typically detach the laptop and take it to the couch or anything. So, you know, if I'm doing a little bit of work over coffee in the morning on the couch, I'm doing it on the iPad. So email you know, productivity, support tickets, things like that. I'm often doing on it. Over the holidays, I was talking to a family member who said that she needed a new Mac and what she just really needed was for me to, to do some maintenance on it. And it got me thinking about people who buy new Macs versus people who buy new iPads. Apple's done such a good job with iOS in terms of like maintenance. It just doesn't really have a lot of things go wrong with it. Not only on a hardware perspective there, you know, there's no moving parts, but also the you know the operating system itself when you delete an app it takes all its data out with it so you don't get a lot of cruft on an iPad and i got thinking maybe that's why people keep iPads so much longer than computers because they don't run into kind of the common user problems that you get with a traditional mac well i think you know applications are more optimized on the iPad to run across numerous generations of it and most of the things people use it for day in and day out, simple web browsing, email, um, games, you know, are not that taxing. So once you've gotten to the level where you've got a new enough one that it's it's retina and um, the battery's not toast on it, you know, there's no reason to stop using it. Also, I think the users that are attracted to that model, you know, kind of the simpler computer, they don't need to upgrade very often. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, if... If they're not looking to do anything new with it, you know, they've got their set of things that they like to do on it. Um, At what point do you say this isn't working for me anymore? Um, It's not. It's going to be usually because of some hardware issue, like the battery doesn't work as well. And that is less of an issue on the iPad because it's got such a big battery relative to a two-year-old iPhone where you really start to notice the failing battery and such and want to upgrade. And you're usually typically not using it for things like the camera and the, the things that have making, made the most technological advances year over year in the iPhone are not the same things that get used so much on the iPad and make it a compelling upgrade. Now, you had said that you keep it on your desk with your iMac, so you've got two platforms in front of you all day. What are the breaking points? Where do you switch from one to the other? I am a bit liquid in that. Uh, There are times when I feel like I'm a higher level of discipline on my productivity. And in those times, I tend to segment out the things like social media and email and do them on the iPad and just not have TweetBot running on my Mac, etc. And then it's a context shift to, you know, even though I'm still at the same desk, I stop and look at the iPad screen and check on those things and... uh, it's enough of a context switch that uh, it helps me stay focused and not have those notifications popping up on my Mac and, and whatnot else. Yeah, that makes sense. I'm I'm sure you probably do some testing too, because your app is on both iOS and Mac. Yeah, absolutely. Where does the iPhone fit into all this? I would actually say I, compared to a lot of people these days, I'm a relatively light iPhone user. Um, 
I mean, certainly when I'm out and about, I, you know, the iPhone is what I have with me and I use it for listening to music, listening to podcasts, um, you know, checking on stuff when I'm out on the go, but I'm actually pretty good at not paying attention to the internet world, but I'm not at my desk. Um, I try not to, uh, be looking at Twitter when I'm out at a restaurant or things like that. So I'm not one who pulls my phone out of my pocket excessively when I'm out and about. So it's the mobile aspects of it that I use most, you know, maps, navigation, music, uh, stuff like that. Um, but when I'm at home, you know, when working at home, I'm usually at home. I tend to pick up, you know, if I'm on my on the couch and doing some gaming or whatever, I'm going to use the iPad because I like the bigger screen. It's more convenient to use. So I'm still sporting uh, the original iPhone 10 and I get, plan to get a full three years out of it. And every once in a while, yeah, there's times I'd like to have that nicer camera, but I don't feel like other than that, there's anything else I need in a phone that I'm not already getting out of this one. So you feel like the 10 is held up well over time? Yeah, I mean, the it was the transition to getting rid of the home button, it was big, and I really like the bigger screen on that, and the face ID is nice, uh, and I prefer it to touch ID, but I've, that's, you know, I already have those things in that device, and it never feels slow to me, it never feels like, uh, boy, I wish, or I wish I had that new one enough to go drop a thousand dollars on it, you know? Sure. Um, and yeah, next year I'll I'll get the new one. But uh, I've always been a kind of a two-year upgrade cycle, despite the fact that I developed for these. I tend to not feel like it's the best thing to always be on the newest one. You know, when I'm using and testing my app, I think it's good to be using a device that's more consistent with uh, what most users out there actually have for performance reasons and whatnot else. I think sometimes developers have the nicest, newest thing and they don't uh, spend enough time testing how well it works on some of the older devices and uh, users suffer. Man, it's always the camera though, right? It's, I think that's what always pulls people in. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, all my wife has the, the new plus max, whatever they call it. Um, and uh, both, both of my older sons got 11s this year. They were on iPhone seven. So they got three years out of those and their seniors and we upgraded them to the iPhone 11 for their birthday this year. And, uh, the pictures and stuff they get, I, I, I borrow their phones to take pictures when we're on vacation or things like that. I'm like, here, <laughs> honey, can I borrow your phone for a minute? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That that's happened to my family too, because I have the new one. My phone has become the designated phone, uh, camera phone. Mm-hmm. So like whenever we go somewhere, my wife is carrying my phone more than I am. This episode of the Mac Power Users is brought to you by Text Expander. Go to textexpander.com slash podcast and let them know you heard about it at Mac Power Users to get 20% off your first year. Hey, it's a new year. Why don't you unlock your productivity with Text Expander? Text Expander makes it possible to manage everything you type repetitively email addresses, phone numbers, common message replies, and more. With Text Expander, it works everywhere you type, like word processors, email, and messaging apps. You can even use it in online forms. 
With Text Expander, you can customize those snippets with fill-in fields and pop-up lists. I love when I send emails out and it says, insert name here, please, Dave. And I do that and it customizes the email to make it look just the way I want to. Also, you can get Text Expander for Teams if you work with a group of people. It's a great way to manage the snippets of your company and make sure your customers always read your best words. Text Expander is available for Mac OS, Windows, Chrome, iPhone, and iPad. So no matter what platform you're on, maybe you've got to work on uh, the Windows at work, but you get to work on the Mac at home, you can do that with Text Expander. And best of all, show listeners get 20% off their first year. So head over to TextExpander.com slash podcast and let them know you heard about it here on the Mac Power Users. Maybe you want to get a little better at automation. This is a great entryway to do so. TextExpander.com slash podcast and let them know you heard about it at the Mac Power Users. Thank you, TextExpander, for all of your support of the Mac Power Users. So, Greg, of course, you, uh, you're paying the bills through software development, through uh, drafts, and we will get to drafts, but I want to talk a little bit about the things that, that make up being a developer. You know, those of us who are close to it, I'm not a developer, but I, most of my friends, it seems like, are. So I know some of the tasks that, that entail that, but for those who may not be so familiar, you know, in a, in a sort of an average work week, what sort of things are you doing on that iMac Pro and your other devices? Well, and obviously, because I'm developing for Apple platforms, I'm in Xcode most of my day. Between the Mac version and the iOS version of drafts, Xcode is always running on my machine, and I'm right in there in the code. And I tend to be a person who, because I'm a one-person shop in Indy, I'm very close to the applications and the support process and stuff. So I, I usually start my day by looking at my support queue and see what news come in and what I can respond to and help people with. And yeah, that's where your bug reports come from. And I'm often go straight from the support ticket into the code and say, well, mm-hmm. what could be going on here? Maybe I can fix it right now. Uh, maybe, uh, looking at it in the debugger is going to help me figure out what their problem is quicker. Um, So I'm kind of back and forth like that. And then I try to lay out my big and small tasks for the day based on that cue. You know, sometimes I feel like I've got to deal with a bunch of little things that I want to get knocked out. Sometimes I'm going to take a big chunk of time and work on a new feature or whatever. And I just shut everything else out and try to get into flow because when you're working on a larger block of code like that, you really getting distracted (laughs) is not good. Um, Sure. So, and it's kind of nice working at home. I don't have people in the office kind of, you know, constantly wanting me to do something else for them or Mm -hmm. whatever i i get to control that um it requires discipline but uh you know i get to get to control that process and when i want to take those breaks and and stuff sure are you using a system for that support queue or are you is it just an inbox like what does that what does that look like i use zendesk and have for a number of years um so it's basically coming through email but it's going into a ticket tracking system at zendesk that handles you know tracking status and stuff that it's not so easy to do with email Um, i originally did it with just email but it got too hard to keep up with it all and make sure because things have ongoing statuses and threads and maybe you have related bugs that you want to group together uh, and that there's tools in there to create macros for responses that are really common you know there's certain uh, there's probably a dozen or so stock answers that 
I'll often customize the answer for the specific thing, but they come up all the time about, mm-hmm. you know, questions about how to work with their subscription or, uh, you know, sync problems or stuff like that, that I have kind of stock troubleshooting answers to that are programmed into macros that I can kind of just click the response and work through it efficiently. You know, there's a lot of people that use Zendesk for development, but I think it could actually be used in other industries as well. Could you explain how it works a little bit? Well, I think there are more advanced versions of Zendesk than I have. I have their basic subscription, but it more or less, I have a support at agiletortoise.com email. That's what I publish. It's what's built into the app. If you click send feedback or whatever, it's going to open an email. I I have it built into the app so that it includes some information for me about what version of drafts they're running, what version of the OS they're running and stuff, because those are things that come up often and it saves a little back and forth uh, to get it up front. But those emails just go into a Gmail account and Zendex is hooked up to monitor that email account. So anything that goes into it just gets sucked into Zendesk and becomes a ticket. And I have a web interface and also apps for Zendesk that give me my ticket queue. And the users get automatic responses, which is very configurable. You can set those up and there's templates for them. But as soon as they submit a ticket, they get an automatic response acknowledging that it's gone into the system. And then I can reply to those right in the interface, um, send attachments, request more information or give them a resolution, hopefully. And I can have statuses attached to it more than you could in a simple email, like it's pending, or I can assign tags to related bugs. So it gives you a lot of tools that you would not get in straight email. But from the user point of view, it's an email thread. They send in a ticket, they get replies in email. Um, So from that end, it doesn't impose anything on your users. It just works with their normal flow. Yeah, I think that's that's definitely critical from the customer perspective. My last job, we used Zendesk, and that's exactly why we liked it. That the the person on the other end didn't have to learn a system; they were just emailing us, right? And then you, behind the scenes, kind of got what you needed to make it more manageable. It's a very, I think, it's a very clever sort of super set of tools on top of email. Yeah, and you don't want people to have to go to some web interface to check on the status of their support ticket. That's not something you want to make your users do. It should just be painless for them, and that's more or less what this does. Yeah, I've got a um, a client that has a, a computer service business. He goes into offices and sets up computers and whatnot, and he set that up for his business, which is not your traditional software business, it's not that expensive, and he told me it just turn. It's changed the way he does customer support uh, in a very good way. You know, he's getting back faster. He's got a paper trail. He's very happy with it, and it got me thinking. This is a traditionally software development tool that I think could go much further. Yeah, and I think at this point, I'm still doing all my support work. Um, and it is one of the first things a lot of indies outsource when they get to a certain level. And having a system like this lets you work with a team too, if you bring in a part-time support associate to help deal with the the low-level tickets and, and whatnot. It's still all in the same place. They could escalate tickets to you. Uh, you know. So when you when you have a team involved, it definitely gets more and more important. And then you're doing the development work over on the iMac Pro largely, or, or how much do you split that between the laptop and the and the big computer? It's uh, pretty much all on the iMac Pro. I, 
because of the burden of moving code back and forth, even though I'm using GitHub, you're always pushing changes or you have branches and getting it all. It's just easier to be on one computer for most of that work. So while I can, if I'm going to go on vacation, well, if I go on vacation, I generally don't bring a Mac. But if I'm going on a working trip of some sort, I, I'll go through doing some updates and make sure everything's on the laptop and I'll code on that for a while. But day to day, I don't go back and forth really. Yeah. And the other thing a lot of people don't realize is Xcode takes a lot of screen real estate. So with that 27 inch screen, it would be hard to go back to a laptop. Now, Greg, you, in addition to, you know, writing code and dealing with customer support, you've just got, like you said, you're wearing all the hats at agile software. So um, what are some of the other tools you use to, to get all that work done? Well, I mean, I am a small business, so the business end of it has to be managed. And I use QuickBooks for that, which is fine. I don't love it. I I think everybody who uses it has a bit of a love-hate relationship with Intuit, but it works best with accountants. It's usually what they want to use. And so that's what I use. And it's not too much of a pain point for me because I have very low transaction volume at this point. I used to be doing more consulting work, um, you know, billing clients and uh, having to deal with invoicing and, and payments and stuff and tracking my time. But as it stands right now, I'm doing all my income from my products and all my products are on Apple's platform. So I basically get paid once a month. <laughs> You know, yeah. I have to settle up my payments uh, when Apple cuts me a check once a month. And my transaction volume for outgoing stuff is is small. It's, it's trivial. So the data entry and maintenance of the business itself is not burdensome. Um, but, you know, you have to keep your books. And I have some background in bookkeeping and stuff, so it was no burden for me to, to take on those responsibilities Um and I just outsource stuff like payroll filings and taxes to an accountant. Um, so I do that stuff, and I just kind of minimize it. I keep up with it, but I would say I I have one block of time a week where I catch up on reconciling the bank accounts and pay bills and enter any transactions that need to, and I probably spend a couple hours on that uh, one morning a week. Hey, Greg, you graduated. I'm going to give a, give away your secret here. You graduated from college as a music major. That is true. And I very much back-ended into uh, development. It was not an intentional career choice. Yeah. <laughs> and now you're running a successful software company. <laughs> Tell us a little bit about how you got from there to here. I did a degree in music, but it was a program in music business, it was kind of geared towards working in the industry. So I'd also did a lot of business classes and I also, I was always doing stuff on the side. I was always a person doing projects and creative things on the side. And when I got out of college, um, I started, uh, a magazine with a friend of mine, a self-published arts and music magazine out of the DC area. And at first, you know, I was learning desktop publishing to do that. And then I was learning automation to, you know, make it easier to drop in all these articles we were getting. And I sort of taught myself that on the side. Um, And then I also just at jobs, having grown up around computers, and this was late 80s, early 90s, I was kind of a little ahead of the curve uh, for most people. And I was just using the tools available to make life easier at all starting to automate things at offices and stuff. Um, and I just, I had a knack for it. And then the, you know, from there, these side projects grew. I 
that magazine became a website in the mid nineties and I needed tools to manage, uh, you know, what at the time was a pretty large website with hundreds of reviews of albums and, um, poetry and interviews and stuff. And I had to manage all this data. So I was looking for tools to make that easier. Um, and I, so I started doing a lot of stuff with user land frontier in the late nineties and web development. And at the same time at work, I was becoming, uh, an in-house developer almost full-time at a job I was at full-time because I started developing FileMaker Pro systems for them. Um, payroll, invoicing, stuff like that. Um, Is that what got you into Apple, the File Pro angle? Yeah, I mean, it was that time frame. I, I go back with Apple pretty much the beginning in the sense that there was an Apple II in our house almost as soon as they came out. Um, but my dad was a mainframe programmer for IBM. So naturally, once the PC came out in the 80s, we kind of switched to that platform. And it wasn't until 95 when I went through serious pain points installing uh, Windows 95 on a, on a Dell desktop that I kind of threw my hands in the air and went out and bought a, a Power Mac 7200. And that's, you know, never looked back. <laughs> More or less, I've been a Mac guy since. But I, but I, I interrupted you. So you were doing some programming at work. It sounds to me like your initial on ramp was kind of web development, but then it turned into something else. Yeah, web development, database automation, and and I was exploring stuff. I I put out a shareware game in the late nineties, um, just kind of doing different side projects. I never knew that. What kind of game was it? It was called Turtle Dice. It was a Yahtzee game. <laughs> Sure. It was written in Real Basic, if you remember it. All right. Uh, it was re- released for both Mac and Windows. Had uh, Kaji shareware payments. Remember Kaji? Oh, yeah. yeah. Wow. <laughs> Those were the days. But so it, I was just always kind of doing these things until uh, I was good at them. And it was making people's lives easier at work. And I was doing side projects that I found interesting. So I just kept learning and doing more and more development work and found it suited my interests um, until suddenly I was doing it full time and not really doing anything else. And you wake up one day and say, hey, wait a second, I'm a developer now. Yeah. And I had gone out on my own. I had worked for about 10 years in-house at a company doing a lot of this stuff. And I also had a lot of administrative IT responsibilities there that I did not enjoy maintaining the machines and servers and stuff. And I, I kind of just said, I'm going to go development full time. And that's when I started the company uh, and quit the job and just started doing consulting work. And that was before the app store was around, but uh, once the App Store came around, I said, well, this is a perfect opportunity for me to uh, switch over to doing not just consulting and getting paid by the hour, but uh, trying to develop some products. Yeah, it, it's an interesting path. And, um, you know, and uh, there's a lot of people that have tried to do it, but you have successfully turned this interest into a full-time app development gig on your own apps, which I think is really the, the icing on the cake. It's been an interesting process. I mean, it certainly has developed over the years. In the early days of the App Store, it was more or less, hey, I'm going to write a new app every year and get it out there. And there's all these novel ideas and, and stuff. And now it's turned into something where I'm just developing one product on an ongoing basis uh, as the platform is matured and, and the needs around it. I mean, you have, and traditionally you had several apps, and now Drafts is really 
your focus now, and and you've turned that into a subscription based uh, model and successfully, and it's it's doing great. Yeah, I I think it's neat that we've found these niches for a lot of indie developers that. Uh, um, you know, it was pretty shaky there for a number of years in the app store where there really wasn't, there was so much competition and the, the low price points for paid apps and we're making it almost impossible to, for anybody to hope to make a living at it. And uh, turning around to a subscription model may not be right for every app, but uh, for an app with a strong community, uh, that's a tool that people use for productivity like drafts, I think it ended up being a very good match. Um, and I really haven't had that much negative pushback. I'm sure I've lost some customers in the transition who don't feel the subscription models right for them. But, um, you know, those are the hits you have to take to, to make a successful business. You can't please everybody. Or, or in that case, just to stay in business. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I was very close prior to the release of Drafts 5, which is almost two years ago now. I was very close to just going back to full-time consulting and or taking a job because there just was not the revenue to support a family of five uh, just selling selling the apps on a paid basis. So I took a bit of a risk there for six months and, you know, spent down my family savings investing in the you know the next level of the the app and luckily was able to turn it into a success where it's it's totally sustainable now and i don't have any silicon valley dreams i'm not trying to grow drafts into some mega multi-million dollar business i just want to build a product that enough people are interested in using and paying for to allow me to continue to make it better and and uh, i think we've gotten to that place which is exciting I know a, a common talking point around the app subscription deal was, well, it gives developers the ability to keep investing in their app. And if I think about where Drafts was two years ago to where it is now, uh, clearly you've been able to expand its footprint. Is that something that you uh, – is that a benefit that you've seen from the switch to subscription? Yeah, absolutely. To be able to work on the app in an incremental way it is really different. Some people still yearn for the upgrade model. But from my point of view as a developer, there's a lot of downsides to that. You dive into saying, you know, every two years you're going to have to release. But then what you end up having to do is hold all these features and prevent users from using them for two years until you get around to doing that big major upgrade that you're going to ask them to pay for. And as it is now, I, I have a pretty significant release of drafts about every two months now with new features, you know, improvements, additional OS integration where appropriate and stuff. And the fact that I'm able to work on it full time and not have to worry about structuring the business around an artificial model of upgrades, I think has made it move so much faster and so much you know more efficiently for uh, the users as well as for me. Yeah. It, well, it's impressive what you've done. We're going to talk about drafts later, but um, I would, I'd like to talk about just the normal things you do with your computer as well before we we get to that. This episode of Mac Power Users is brought to you by 1Password. Go to onepassword.com slash MPU to learn more. One of the best features in 1Password is Watchtower. It alerts you to password breaches and other security problems so you can keep your accounts safe. 
You can set up automatic alerts so you don't have to go around to all your logins and see if there's a problem. One password will tell you if there's an issue so you can change your passwords right away. They do this by keeping a tab on what's going on on the internet, such as the Have I Been Pwned database. So it checks that uh, your passwords aren't in there. And if it is, again, it tells you. It also will tell you if you are reusing passwords. So if you have that one account that gets breached, well, if that password is in use various places, you've given up the keys to a lot of things in your kingdom. And one password will point those out to you and prompt you to change them. It's a great tool because it means one password has your back. One password, of course, works across a bunch of devices and you can use it with a bunch of different people through one password for teams and one password for families. Head on over to onepassword.com slash MPU to learn more and sign up for a free 30-day trial. When you sign up, you'll get 20% off. That's onepassword.com slash MPU. Greg, you're also a Mac user, and I would argue a power Mac user with all your scripting and programming experience. I was just kind of curious, how do you manage things like calendars and tasks and you know, the usual user problems we all face, uh, you know, what, what do you, how do you do that stuff? I use a lot of the same apps that probably a lot of Mac power users. And honestly, I've learned a lot of tips from this show over the years, you know, as a regular listener and, and employed those, but I, I have a task management system or kind of more than one task management system probably, but I use things uh, from culture code. Uh, I love it. And for basic, uh, tracking of ongoing issues for the app, for uh, the business sort of things, you know, developing documentation. I, I create projects in there. I lay out tasks and subtasks and, and work through them in a pretty traditional way. Um, for some of my bigger software planning things, I don't like uh, the restrictions of a regular task manager. And I tend, uh, for years, I have used Omni, Omni Outliner for that kind of stuff. Um, where I can lay out, uh, it's easier to drag and drop around and spitball things on, on a larger project in an outliner kind of format. Um, and I, I love the way you can make multiple columns and, you know, kind of have a series of check boxes for items that, you know, might be multi-stage processes and things like that. And it, you know, works well with, with my, uh, mine for calendars. I, I really, I have relatively simple calendar needs. Um, I use Fantastical, but I would say 80% of my calendar stuff is related to family obligations and, uh, you know, things the kids are doing and stuff like that. Because I work for myself alone at home, I don't have a tremendous number of meetings and calls and things that I'm always keeping up with. So I don't think uh, my calendar needs are terribly complex. One of the side advantages of getting out of the consulting business for you, I'm guessing, is your calendar got a lot easier to manage. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I really don't have too many things. I probably have one or two business-related appointments a week that, you know, or some call or uh, or whatever that are tied to a specific time. You know, most business is being conducted through email and, and all that's not, uh, you know, time-sensitive. I'm not regularly doing a podcast or thing like that where I'm coordinating and recording uh, 
with people. So yeah, my calendar is pretty flexible and, and open and I don't have to tie myself to that too much. You know, power tip for someone like you who doesn't have a lot of um, those types of commitments is just to, in your mind, pretend there's only one day a week you can do them, like pick a Thursday and then go into the future only schedules the things on Thursdays. It, I did that for some of the stuff in my life and it really simplified things. So there's nothing worse than having like one meeting every day. I'd rather have five meetings on one day, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Something you told me um, in one of our conversations that I wrote down, cause I thought it was interesting for the show is you don't even have Chrome installed on your Mac. Well, technically I do have it installed. I will admit that I do not use it except for in some very uh, extreme circumstances, usually because of some site that just doesn't seem to work right uh, in other browsers. But uh, my day-to-day browsing is all in Safari and I'm almost always happy with it. And I appreciate, uh, you know, it syncs to all my devices and with the tie-in on iOS, it's hard to compete with Safari across platforms. Um, And then I also run Firefox mostly as a context shift, but uh, I use Zendex Desk in Firefox and I use Facebook in Firefox because I don't ever want to log into it on my main browser. But, uh, you know, Safari, you know, does most of it. So as a web developer, why are you afraid to log into Facebook on your main browser? All the normal privacy concerns and ad tracking stuff. I mean, I run one blocker on Safari. I try to minimize my footprint and have the various do not track things enabled. Uh, Firefox has a nice extension called the Facebook, uh, I think the Facebook container extension that even though you're logged into Facebook, it does some additional work to block them from tracking your uh, usage. And since I'm not doing much other browsing in Firefox, uh, I don't have to worry too much about them tracking those sorts of things. I've shut down the Facebook profile enough to the extent that you get very paranoid when they still do manage to uh, target you (laughs) with very specific advertising and you wonder how in the world did. (laughs) Yeah, I I was just listening to Connected this morning. Stephen was talking about how when he's watching the Amazon Prime video app on his iPad and he opens Safari in his phone that the video app on his iPad stops. Yeah. I got thinking, is it possible that it's just sending data over uh, to say, oh, this is what he's doing on Safari for tracking? No, I think handoff is just completely broken in in that app. (laughs) Uh, But, you know, you do raise an interesting point where all like the web is so much more complicated than it used to be. Right. (laughs) That you have to really think about these websites, knowing what we're doing and setting cookies and and limiting what things you do in what browser. And it's, it's a shame that it's come to that, but I think you're far from alone in thinking that way too. Yeah. I do have fun manipulating Facebook's advertising algorithms to some extent by, <laughs> uh, by segmenting them like this. Uh, and then you still, it bleeds through and, you know, Amazon manages to target you because you browse something on their website. And over the years, I've continued to intentionally click on certain ads to make things weirder and weirder. But on Facebook, I get mostly Amazon ads and I get them for things like dot matrix printers or (laughs) (laughs) truly outdated and odd electronic things and stuff uh, just based on my browsing history and what I click on and how little information they have about me. (laughs) 
All right. Well, at least you're you're having fun with it. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I, 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 the thing I just can't get over is most people that don't listen to MBU don't realize how much tracking is going on. And it's like, I, I was talking to a friend uh, recently who told me that she turns on the private mode thinking that that's going to protect her. And I'm like, you don't understand. That's not going to protect you at all. Um, it's all done at the IPN, but the, uh, I don't think people appreciate how much it's not based on them as well, especially in the Facebook social graph. You know, my yeah. wife will click on an ad for something or visit a website and then suddenly I'll start getting the ads for that, you know, because we're associated and they, if, if they don't have enough data on you, they're going to use the data from the other people you're related to in one way or another, or, you know, are in your social graph that uh, you interact with. So you can't you can't completely protect yourself uh, if you exist in a social network. Yeah, the last time I logged into Facebook was to post a message on the Mac Power Users Facebook forum that we've moved to Discord, and I put a link in. I think it's time I got I went in there and just shut that account down. But I was afraid to do it at the time because I was afraid nobody get the word that we'd moved. But uh, I I just really don't like Facebook. Stephen, are you a Facebook person? I don't think we've ever talked about that. No, I don't have yeah. an account. Yeah. Yeah, I'm putting that on my. I'm writing it down right now. By the time the next MPU episode publishes, I'm not sure the MPU forum and Facebook may disappear when I cancel my account. I don't know what's going to happen, but whatever. I don't love it, and I avoid Facebook when I can. But there's just still too many things in my day to day life that it's hard to avoid. Just family, uh, especially uh, local and neighborhood kind of groups yeah. and and relationships in real life stuff and things like. The Facebook marketplace has more or less uh, replaced Craigslist in a lot of ways. So if you're just trying to buy and sell things locally, things like that, that it's hard to not participate mm -hmm. in that space. Well, I, I think an excellent piece of advice is to to segment that off outside of your main browser. If you're listening to the show and and you do use Facebook for whatever reason, um, maybe try. You know, Firefox was interesting to me because I haven't used that app in years, but the um, uh, I would be inclined to do it in Chrome, but I guess maybe that's just um, more meat for the wolves, you know, doing it there. I'm not sure. I've had trouble with Chrome, too, and I know a lot of people like it, but it always seems to have been a hog on my machines, and I have it hang more often on pages and things. that I, I was using it as the secondary browser for several years, and Firefox really upped their game uh, over the last year or two, and the quality of the that browser is great, and it, I do think they care more about privacy and stuff, so I'm happy to be using it instead. Yeah, Firefox really has come a long way. I definitely recommend it as a second browser. I keep it around for that same reason, uh, not for Facebook, but just there are occasions where you need another browser, and it is shockingly better than it was three or four years ago. Yeah, and it, the secondary browser is is really a productivity tip that I think a lot of people don't take advantage of because almost everybody these days has, you know, between work and home, you know, they have different accounts like multiple Google accounts they've got to be switching between and stuff like that. And sometimes if you just use a different browser to s segment that stuff out, it, it helps you avoid bleed over. It helps you avoid sending the Gmail from the wrong Gmail address or uh, opening up the Google Docs to the wrong context or, you know, things like that. 
Yeah. And there's a lot of good options out there. My wife, I don't understand why, you know, when you're married, there's certain things you don't fight about. And uh, one of them is my wife's tendency to want to use Chrome and Safari simultaneously, each with like 20 tabs open in it. And Mm -hmm. like just the other day we were laying in bed, I'm getting ready to go to sleep. She's working on her laptop and I can hear the fans going in her machine. And I said, just close Chrome, you know, just quit Chrome. And she did. And then the fans stopped. I mean, Mm -hmm. that's, I mean, Chrome is, it's not particularly friendly to your battery. Yeah. Well, I, my wife pretty much exclusively uses Safari and has the same tendency to have a hundred tabs open. And I think that's just as likely that one of those tabs goes awry and eats her CPU too. Safari's not completely safe in that area. Yeah. This episode of the Mac Power Users is brought to you by Squarespace. Make your next move and enter offer code MPU at checkout to get 10% off your first purchase. We're so happy to have Squarespace as a sponsor of the Mac Power Users. We both believe in and use the product. Squarespace lets you easily create a website for your next idea with a unique domain, award-winning templates, and more. So what do you want to create on the internet? Maybe it's a portfolio or a blog or maybe even an online store. Squarespace is the all-in-one platform that lets you do just that. There's nothing to install, no patches to worry about, and no upgrades needed. You don't have to worry about any of that stuff. Squarespace has got it all covered. They have award-winning 24-7 customer support if you need any help, and they let you quickly and easily grab a unique domain name. And all of those award-winning templates are beautifully designed for you to show off your great ideas. We hear from listeners all of the time that are using Squarespace to run their businesses, restaurants, whatever. I use it to run not only the Max Sparky website, but also my legal practice. People ask me who I hired to build my website because they're so impressed, and I get to tell them I just pay Squarespace $12 a month. Because that's all it takes, and you can get started with a trial with no credit card required by going to squarespace.com mpu. And when you decide to sign up, use the offer code MPU to get 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain and to show your support for us here at the Mac Power Users. Once again, that's squarespace.com slash MPU and the code MPU to get 10% off your first purchase. We thank Squarespace for all of their support of this show and Relay FM. Squarespace, make your next move, make your next website. So, Greg, I've never told you this, but uh, several years ago, I was in the middle of a heated trial. I was staying at a hotel in downtown L.A. It was one of those things where you just had to be there every day. And as I was finishing my day, a friend of mine sent me this link, said, you've got to try this app, Drafts Out. And you know, I, I thought I'd seen it all. And then, so I download your app. I, yeah, I didn't know you at the time. And... Uh, what Drafts does, if you've never used it before, is it, it's an app. As soon as you hit the icon, it opens up and has a blinking cursor. So you can immediately start typing, which I had never seen an app do that before. Every app that I'd seen before, you had to create a file or set a directory, do something before you could start typing. So first, you know, I, I was love at first sight. It's like, oh, I open this up and I start typing or dictating with Siri and then you added all these actions where once you finish the text, what do you want to do with it? You can send it off to, you know, you know, a, a pre-designated text message recipient, or you can create an email from it. But it's like, it's just an app that you can open up and create words that, that you do other things with. And it pushed all of my automation buttons. 
And also it did something for me. It was like a new type of app. And as someone who loves the stuff like I do, there's nothing more delightful than seeing a developer come up with just a new way to think about this stuff that changes the way you do your work. And that night, after I downloaded the app, I wrote like seven emails, added tasks to OmniFocus, and I did everything in your app. And that I started something that I, I do to this day is opening drafts and putting things in. And I just wanted to talk about, in hindsight, it's obvious that this app should have existed on the iPhone, but how did you get there? How did you create it? I really did have an aha moment with drafts. I mean, I was already developing some apps for the app store. And so I was clearly thinking about new ideas and, and what, what would make a good app. But, uh, it really happened in, in a moment for me. And it's, this was 2011, 2012, uh, when drafts first came out and I was first working on the idea. And if you roll back your, your mind to the iPhone of that day, you know, a lot of things have gotten better in iOS over the years, but a lot of things were super clunky back then uh, and super difficult. There wasn't the multitasking tray and, uh, you know, we had just gotten copy and paste and, and stuff. And what happened for me is I opened up the email program, started a new email to my wife about something. I, I don't even remember what it was about at this point, but Halfway through writing that sentence, I realized, well, this is more urgent than an email. I really should text her this. And that doesn't sound that painful, but it kind of was then. you, I had to go in there. I had to select the text. I had to copy it. I had to go quit the mail program. I had to go find the messages program, launch it. I had to go find the conversation with my wife or start a new one and address it and paste it in. And as I was doing this, I thought, you know... I really shouldn't have to make all these upfront decisions about my text. I should just be able to open up my phone and type something and figure out what I want to do with it later. Uh, maybe it's going to be a note in notes. Maybe it's going to end up being a text message. Maybe it's going to just sit there for a week until I act on it later because it's an email I started drafting that I decided doesn't need to be sent right away or whatever. And I thought, well, I just really need a place like that. I need to not have to think about it. I don't want to have to name a file or create a folder or go find the right app. I just want to launch my phone and type stuff. <laughs> I want to get it out of my head. I want to be able to capture it and put it in the phone. And that's the core concept of the original version of drafts. And then once you captured it, you needed ways to do something with it. You need, you know, you needed ways to get it out of there and do something with it. And that's where action started being born. And, you know, the first version was very simple and had a stock set of, uh, I don't know, a dozen or so actions that you could message it, you could email it, you could uh, uh, tweet it. And that just has grown over the years to, you know, service more different kind of needs and uh, workflows. But that was the core concept to just be a, you know, place to capture stuff. And it fits in with the getting things done, GTD philosophy of, you know, emptying your head and getting those ideas out with as little friction as possible. So that's what I tried to build with the app as a simple place to dump those ideas. Well, it's, it's kind of revolutionary in its simplicity. And I, you know, like I said, for me, it was just the perfect app. One of the tricks I do with drafts is it's one of the few apps that I put badges on for. And I have a badge for anything that's in the inbox and in drafts. So then every time I look at the screen, 
the badge offends me. So I go in drafts and deal with the text that I've added to it recently. <laughs> um, but the, uh, it's just such a, just such a great idea. I was, I was thinking as we were prepping for today's show, what are some other apps that have like blown me away like that? Like something that only, you know, only on this platform could this work for me. And, and like mind mapping comes to mind because mind mapping on iPad is a uniquely different experience but the but drafts really is something that said we're going to give you a new bag of tools because you've got this different platform and I you know my hat's off to you and I'm so happy that 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 idea has turned into a career for you because um, it deserves to. Thanks, I appreciate that. Uh, I I was kind of amazed. I thought I had a good concept when I when I put it out, but I really was amazed that it clicked with as many people as it did um, and, and found a home. I kind of thought it would be a niche app that a few people would like, um, but it did so much better than that. And, and it really, uh, it's exciting to see the way people have grown with it. Now, as an automation nerd, you're also responsible for something that I just want to talk about on the show. And that is um, you, and I believe, was it Marco Arment? I know there were several people working with you at the time, but um, you guys are the ones that first started coming up with these URL schemes. Yeah, I mean, what Marco and I did was put together X callback URL, which there were, I won't take credit for using URL schemes in this way originally. There were apps doing it, but it was kind of a wild west and uh, there was no consistency to the way people were implementing them. So people weren't documenting it and maybe they put a URL scheme in their app for some convenience thing, but didn't tell people about it or how to use it. And we wanted to make a way for it to be easier for apps to be consistent about what they offered in URL schemes and um, be consistent in the implementation so that users and or other developers trying to take advantage of them would have an easier time. And also to document the ability to use callbacks to not just open another app with a URL scheme, but be able to pass data back and forth between apps. And the original implementation of X callback was in my dictionary app terminology. And it was an integration with Instapaper that, that Marco did. And we, we traded emails back and forth and blog posts about it at the time, decided to work together on that. And the, the concept was basically, hey, I'm in Instapaper. I don't know what this word means. I want to look it up in a dictionary. There was not a system dictionary at the time. And so he implemented a way to call the URL scheme in terminology from a selected word in Instapaper. And it would go over to terminology directly to that word, look it up, but also give you a way to click a button that took you right back to Instapaper. And again, at the time, there was not a multitasking tray uh, and and stuff on the iPhone. So it was a much more painful process uh, to do things like that. So it was a quick way to create some efficiency. And uh, I really ran with it after that with drafts because, as we discussed, once you have this place to capture text and you want to do things with it, you want to be able to send it to other apps. It was a perfect, you know way to expand drafts is to encourage other developers to implement these URL schemes so that drafts could send that text over to them, be it other notes apps or task managers or whatever else. Uh, 
And at the time, there was no way to share data between apps on iOS. And as a user at the time, it used to just enrage me because I, I had apps giving me good information that if they could only talk to each other. You know, having been used to things like Apple Script, I was thinking, well, why don't we have that here? Mm-hmm. And uh, you guys really scratched an itch. And I mean, the reason that, you know, the whole reason that we get some of these automation-friendly apps on iOS, to me, goes to those emails between you and Marco starting a uniform system of URL callback. I mean, uh, I don't know how we would have shortcuts today if you guys hadn't started us on that path. Well, I, I certainly hope w- that we would have gotten there anyway, but I think it pushed Apple in the right direction. Uh, I mean, I came from the background of doing this stuff on the Mac, just like you discussed, you know, with Apple Script. And you know, I was writing automations to use Userland Frontier and Apple Script to pull data from databases and then put them in PageMaker or Quark and, uh, you know, do those kind of automations that were just part of the Mac ecosystem. And it was painful that there was no way to do that on iOS. And you kind of wondered at a certain point with the sandboxing architecture of iOS, if Apple was ever going to go that route or not. And to some extent, URL schemes were just, here's one thing we can take advantage of to build some of that functionality. It's not as good. It's not as well thought out. Uh, It's clunky, but it exists. Therefore, let's see how we can take advantage of it and do as much as we can. And I think once there was a breaking point where we got up to, you know, a dozen or two dozen apps that had implemented these, um, that people really started to see the possibilities. And I do think, I mean, I've, I, I can't speak to exactly what their inspiration was, but it was a big chunk of what workflow was, was providing a tool to work with these. And that's, of course, what would become shortcuts. So it's neat to see it go in the right direction, too. And in a lot of ways, Marco and I discussed this when we were first building it. We always considered it a hack. Um, And we kind of thought, well, this is something we're just going to have to do for the next year or two until Apple gets its act together and offers us something better. And here we are many years later, and we're finally getting that with shortcuts, which is great to see. and I think we'll see URL schemes used a lot less because they're not super user-friendly and there can be certain security issues to the implementation and, and such. So I'm glad to see the other options coming around. Yeah, what, what do you see as the future of URL schemes? Do you think they'll still be in use in two or three years? Well, they're never going to go away. And they still have a primary purpose that they exist for, which is like deep linking between apps. And that those sort of functionality is never going to go away. You want to have a a way to provide a link that you can click on that goes directly to a specific restaurant's page in Yelp or goes specifically to a tweet in the Twitter app or to the right draft in the drafts app or whatever. That's that's the primary purpose. You know, it is a uniform resource locator. That's what a URL is and that's what it should do. Um, As far as using them for actions and automation and passing things back and forth with callbacks, I think we'll see a lot less of that. Um, I think that there will there will be better in other options on iOS and there already are on the Mac. So um, I think they'll always be in the toolbox, but I think you'll see them less and less. 
Yeah, I think Apple definitely wants us to use them less now. I think it's the whole, the push into shortcuts and the ability for um, app developers to create their own shortcuts, you know, shortcuts actions like you've done with drafts. Um, I I think that's where they want people heading. Yeah. And I don't think they're never going to phase them out. They're always something that has a use case. Um, But uh, I think they'll be emphasized less and less. And I mean, there's still ways that they're important. I mean, as it stands right now, even with all the things we've gotten with shortcuts and parameters in iOS 13, URL schemes are still the only way to trigger a shortcut from another app other than shortcuts. (laughs) So, you know, they haven't completely filled those gaps yet. Uh, They still rely on them themselves. And I think that'll continue to get better over time as well. I don't know the answer to this. Could could Apple shut down URL schemes if they wanted to? I'm not even sure they could. I don't think they... I mean, they could prevent apps from registering custom URL schemes, but it's so embedded in the ecosystem, I don't really see how that... Um, they could potentially force you into the, the universal linking system, which is what, uh, if you're familiar with uh, sites that, have an HTTP link that ultimately ends up opening in an app that's managed through a system of, you know, web-based registration and Apple could shut down custom URL schemes and force people to go through that system. And by doing so, they would gain a certain security advantages in that they could blacklist some of those registrations remotely or whatever. But I still don't, I don't see them going that way. There's, I mean, there's mail to links and, you know, telephone links and things like that that are all over the web and all over apps. And they really just can't shut that kind of stuff down. So draft started out with a very simple idea, capture text super easily and then send it off as a message or an email. You know, most of the basic needs people have. In fact, a lot of that stuff is the stuff I still use drafts the most often for is that original feature set. But you've come so much further since then. You know, Stephen was saying, now that's on the subscription, you're just like pushing out updates. You've got a Mac version now, and you've got all these cool features. And and some people are using drafts as so much more than a text capture tool. As the the father of this little thing, what are some of the interesting uses you've seen from users that you never would have expected? There's been a lot of things over the years. I mean, the original version didn't have the level of customization, but as it's grown with the JavaScript engine in it, people can do almost anything they want to manipulate text in it. Um, You can use your drafts as a bit of a database. You can write scripts that query all your notes and loop over them and do different things with them. So there's a lot of processing related things I've seen people do that are are very nifty. Um, There's a few really advanced scripts that uh, have impressed the heck out of me where people have write, written really domain-specific languages for parsing text they write in drafts. Um, there's a couple from Peter Davidson Reber, uh, who I don't know too much about personally, but has been a very active drafts user. And he he implemented some scripts that allow him to mark up a draft, basically write a whole project out uh, with special markup using exclamation points and at signs and hashtags to distinguish the parts. And then with one action, click that and turn it into a whole project in things with all the tasks and subtasks assigned due dates and tags and subheaders and stuff. Um, 
that's just you know amazing that I never thought of anybody doing in in drafts. Similarly, he's got one that sort of implements the functionality of Fantastical in drafts itself. It uh, lets you write events in natural language, uh, you know, in a text file, and then just uh, hit the action, and it'll turn it into a whole series of calendar events and just parse them out line by line. Those sort of sorts of advanced uses like that, I really never imagined uh, people doing in drafts. When I put the script engine in, I thought people will use it for stuff like uh, converting text to uppercase or lowercase or, uh, you know, cleaning up little bits of text, things like that. And to see people doing uh, more advanced things like that with it is super cool and amazing. But day to day, the things I see that people have made the most productive use of it are relatively simple and not that advanced uh, setting up actions that let them use templates for things like meeting notes and stuff that they can come in and hit an action and have drafts prompt them for a couple things up front about like what date this meeting is and who who are the attendees and have it all go into a template uh, and then have actions that at the end of the meeting just tap one button and it sends that meeting notes out to Dropbox in the right folder and emails it to the people who were at the meeting, et cetera. Um, just time savers uh, for people who have repetitive tests, tasks, those sort of automation things are super neat. Yeah. We've, we've seen people also do it with like diary entries where they'll give mm-hmm. themselves um, written prompts at the end of the day and they use drafts and ask you a few questions. You answer the questions in the app and then it stuffs it into day one or a text file or wherever you want to store it. And um, it's a nice kind of practice if you want to get good at journaling at the end of the day. Yeah. And Drafts tries to create, uh, there's a lot of system features that are accessible through the scripting that uh, you just can't get in most notes apps. And the thing I use it for that is one of my favorite uses of Drafts is just managing shopping lists, especially for the grocery store. You know, you can have check boxes in Drafts just like you can in notes, but I used to do this in notes back before I had this, these features in drafts and it was kind of painful. I don't know if you've used the check boxes in notes a lot, especially if you're on your iPhone and like you're at the grocery store, but the text is small and the check boxes aren't that big and your phone keeps going to sleep. And then you go to type hit one of the boxes and you end up selecting text instead and stuff. So in drafts, you can combine a bunch of the features to make that easier. There's different syntaxes in drafts, and each syntax lets you save your font size and margin settings and stuff specific to that. So that I have a list, list syntax that has a very large font. And then I can script drafts with an action that uh, puts it in a mode that prevents it from editing the text. So I'm at the store. I've got my list. I don't want to edit the text. I just want to check off boxes. So that prevents that. And it also prevents the phone from going to sleep. So I can set it in the cart in front of me and every new item I get, I don't have to go wake up the phone and give it that funny face ID stare to get it to unlock and get back and check something off. It just stays awake. Um, those sorts of things, uh, just make your life easier when you incorporate them in your in your flow, or or even just making something a checkbox item in drafts is easier than notes because in notes it the way they do it in notes is the same way you would have done it in you know nineteen eighty five. You select <laughs> you know it, I mean it, I, I don't really mean that as a cut, but it just kind of 
that has not evolved. And with drafts, the whole idea is you just start typing and things happen. And there's something kind of great about that if you want to, you know, get over the small learning curve to figure out how to do it. Drafts for the Mac. This is something that I've wanted for years. I know if I look through our email thread between each other, I'm sure there's a lot of emails from me to you about this. But (laughs) I work in front of a Mac all day, and I frequently get telephone calls as a part of my job. And I want to take notes on the call. And I always had this thing where someone would want me to talk to me about a project. And on my phone and on my iPad, I always knew exactly what to do, hit the drafts icon and then start taking notes and then I can put them wherever they belong later. But on the Mac, there really wasn't an app that did that for a very long time. I mean, like, like, you know, earlier you could open notes, but then you've got to create a note and you've got to figure out where that note's going to go. And it's a temporary place for text. So if you don't forget to get rid of it after you move it later, you've got this like kind of bloat in your notes library of little bits that you don't even know what they mean in six months. (laughs) Um, so I always wanted drafts, you know, and we got that now, you know, what is it? I don't even know. I think it's command shift two. Is that it? I I don't even know what it is. I push a button and a draft opens for me (laughs) and I start typing. And, and first of all, again, congratulations on getting that out. But what was involved with going from iOS developer to Mac developer? It's something I had wanted to do since years back, uh, you know, early on when I was doing a notes app. I started getting those requests for a Mac version and I wasn't really ready to do it at the time resource wise. Um, and I kind of dove back into redeveloping when drafts five came out, I rewrote the app from the ground up and I took that opportunity to address the things that were not cross platform and try to develop all the core things in a way that could be cross platform. So from day one, I had a Mac project, uh, in, in drafts five, it didn't ship till later. You know, it wasn't the first priority to get it out, but all through the process, I was developing it with the intention of bringing it to the Mac. So of course I was doing this long before we, uh, had catalyst or anything, even as a twinkling in our eye. Um, so I did it all in app kit and I'm really glad I did. I don't think that catalyst is going to be, uh, ready for an app like drafts, uh, soon. I think there's great things about it and it's going to get better, but I think something that's a core productivity app like drafts, you just would not shine in that, uh, that mode. So, uh, by the time I ship drafts for, um, a lot of the core stuff, the note storage sync, uh, things like that, the editor were all written to be able to run on the Mac as well. Um, and then I really just had to develop the rest of the UI to get it polished and, and get it ready. And it's been interesting. There's a, there's a lot of differences between the platforms, but I've done some Mac work in the past, nothing on this scale, but, uh, I, you know, I was prepared for what I was getting myself into and it's been a great process. I mean, I love the Mac as much as I love my iPhone and it's great to have the, have the app on both platforms and, uh, bring that level of functionality everywhere. Are you finding your users are using it differently on the Mac than ways you anticipated? I think so. Um, I launched the Mac version earlier in 2019 without any of the action support. And I did it because I didn't want to hold off for the action support to be completely ready. And I knew the capture functionality. And and from the first requests for a Mac version I've gotten, many people have just said, hey, 
I don't even care if it does all the action stuff. I just want my notes there. I want the stuff to sync, uh, you know, and I, I had many people tell me over the six or eight months before action ship for the back, but the back version was out that they were capturing stuff all day along on it and then pulling out their iPhone and actually processing the stuff they captured on their Mac <laughs> on the iPhone. Cause they had the actions there. Um, but I do think it's made drafts much more attractive as a long-term storage uh, space for notes. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, its heritage has been capture and then forward that stuff off somewhere else. And I see a lot more people using it now with the tagging in the workspaces and the text never leaves there. Um, they're using it as a full-time note solution that they're organizing the information in and stuff that uh, is, you know, a much more mature use of drafts and it's neat to see it get to that level. Well, at this point you've got a very mature iOS app. You've made it to the Mac. You've got actions installed. Uh, to what extent can you share to us the future of drafts? I have a more or less endless list of ideas and, you know, I have a whole project of future ideas for drafts, um, some crazier than others, but there's more or less an endless list of additional services I can integrate into the actions framework. Um, and I'm going to be working on bringing some more of those to the platform this year, just, you know, other publishing platforms, other, uh, you know, note-taking and task management platforms that people want to integrate with. The two biggest items for 2020 are uh, providing support for custom syntax highlighting definitions and for custom themes. And that's going to add a lot of flexibility to the app because as it stands, uh, draft ships with good support for markdown and for task paper and, you know, for plain text. But uh, a lot of people want to use other formats or custom syntax definitions for things like org mode or other things I get requests for. And this will allow the community to build those and share them. Same thing for editor themes. People always want to customize their colors and, and stuff and bringing those to the platform is, is going to make that uh, you know a more pleasant editing experience for people. Well, I look forward to seeing what you know what comes out next. This episode of Mac Power Users is brought to you by Booz Allen. Modernizing for the future is a challenge, especially for large organizations. You may need to integrate legacy systems with new technology and incorporate AI and analytics to work more efficiently and make fast decisions. And everyone needs new ways of thinking to move to what's next, whether for government or commercial goals. Booz Allen understands that they're helping some of the world's largest organizations modernize. They understand that the missions of government and industry need to adapt to constant change. They provide open source solutions so clients can integrate innovation from anywhere, whether from visionary startups to major contractors. Plus, they're helping clients power new technologies with analytics, And because security is everyone's priority, they integrate their capabilities with intelligence-grade cybersecurity. With Booz Allen, integration means putting you in control of innovation. Integrate, innovate, get it done with Booz Allen. Learn more at boozallen.com slash relay. That's boozallen.com slash relay. Greg, with all the stuff you've been doing and the, the interesting path you've taken from music major to development company uh share some of your favorite apps and services with us yeah i i debated on this when uh when i was getting ready for the show and, and there's lots of little things i could share but the 
one of the best things in my life over the course of the last year or two has been the rise of discourse, uh, the open source forum software, the same one you use for the Mac power users community yeah. and that I use for the drafts community. And it's been such a boon, I think, for communities in general. Um, it's been great for the drafts community. It's provided this consistent interface uh, for people to organize around you know, software and other services and stuff. And uh, it's also made my life a lot easier from a sp- support perspective and from a communication perspective, because it also serves kind of as an email newsletter and things like that, that I maybe always haven't been as good at doing as I should be as a business person. Um, So I, I, you know, not only for the community I write and how it makes my life easier uh, from a business perspective, I love to participate in the communities for other, uh, you know, podcasts and software, you know, to have, discourse out there. And if you run a community of any sort, uh, you should definitely take a look at uh, moving to it. Yeah, I can just second that when I, for a variety of reasons last year, I decided, well, actually it was more than a year ago now, but for a variety of reasons, a few years ago, I decided I wanted a divorce from Facebook. I didn't like what was happening with the stuff our users were, the way our, our users' content was being used. And, um, and a bunch of people told me that it, that I was crazy, that Facebook is the only place you can do this and that you're going to lose, nobody's going to come over. And I'll tell you, there are more users on our discourse than there ever were on Facebook. And it's a much safer space for our listeners to communicate with each other. And, you know, we've got a sheriff in town. So if there's a problem, we take care of it, but we really don't need to very often. And, um, and if you have a, a company that's relying on a Facebook group, I would absolutely recommend looking into you know getting control of that yourself. I know a lot of people are in Slack now inside internally in corporations and stuff. And I would, you know, if I was in an organization like that now, I would prefer to have an internal discourse um, in terms of your control over your data uh the ability to build uh, shared knowledge history and stuff and some of the things Slack is supposed to do well, uh, but I think ends up being more of a distraction at times. Yeah, that was one of the problems with Facebook is I would see the same thread show up about every three months. And the problem was people couldn't find the old thread because of whatever Facebook was doing, whereas now you don't have that. You've got a clear history of the content. Yeah. It's um, it's it is really nice, and because they made it such a nice platform, it's kind of a solved problem. It, the The management of it doesn't take a lot of time. Oh, and it's so incredibly deep and powerful. I keep surprising myself when I dig around in the settings of what I can control in there. Um, you know, versus forum softwares I've used in the past that always felt like they were super limited, uh, or you know, just kind of clunky old PHP forums mm-hmm. and things like that. Uh, it, it's really nice to have such a high level professional tool out there. Yeah. And David touched on it, but the, the management tools really are spectacular. Someone reports a post or a thread as an admin, you can go in there, see what's going on, contact the person. You have a bunch of options. It's really flexible and you can sort of meld it, you know, the, meld the software to your community rules. And I think I've been really happy with it, you know, having used it for the last year. Yeah. You have a lot of tools as a moderator too, to, you know, when a thread comes up, that's not 
may be appropriate for the forum, but it's not necessarily something you want to ban someone over. It's really easy to make it an unlisted or a hidden thread that you can still engage with that user and make sure they get the help they need or whatever without chunking up the search history with stuff that's not going to be applicable to your users and stuff. Um, super, super powerful. You also told me you're using Atlas Obscura. Tell me about that. Yeah, I threw that one in there as more of a personal note kind of thing that uh, I, we are a road trip family. We always have been. Um, I grew up taking road trips and we take our kids every year on a couple week trips to national parks and stuff. And I often talk to people about how, well, their kids don't do road trips or, you know, my wife and I just, we don't do road trips. And I'm like, well, why not? Well, the kids hate road trips. Why do they hate road trips? Tell me about your last road trip. Well, we got in the car and we drove eight hours to grandma's house. We stopped for gas and to use the restroom. Well, I would hate that road trip too. <laughs> you know, it's not a lot of fun just to sit in a car all day. But uh, Atlas Obscura, many people are probably familiar with it. It's been growing like crazy in terms of the depth of information on it. But it's basically a way to find weird and unusual uh, stops and uh, sites to see. And if you're ever taking a road trip, take the time to look at sites along your route and find some places to get out of the car and find some weird and interesting history. Um, whether, you know, it's plaques or statues commemorating organizations in some little town, uh, you know, or these free museums that, uh, cover some bit of obscure local history and stuff. It just, uh, makes those kind of road trips so much more fun. Yeah, you know, I'm familiar with it, but I've never used it before. I think I need to add this to my list. Even if you're flying to a destination, to a city you're not familiar with, uh, take the time to look it up there. And you may find like two blocks from where you're staying at your hotel is some super interesting uh, historical site that you can go check out. And, and atlasobscura.com is a website. I don't know, do they have an app? I don't know that they have an app they have their their website works well on mobile i've never tried to use it in an app all right steven have you ever used this before uh no but i just searched memphis while y'all were talking and they do a pretty good job i think there are only one or two things came to mind that should be on here and what's cool is you can uh suggest things so if you live someplace and there's some weird thing people should know about you think you can just go in there and tell them and it looks like they they vet those in adam so it's cool there's another website that served this purpose to some extent for years it's called Roadside America, but uh, and it's still interesting to go check out, but it uh, looks like a website that was built in 1998 and has not been updated since, <laughs> as you can imagine. So it's, uh, it's not uh, the greatest to use, but uh, also is a treasure trove of weird little bits and locations like that. Yeah, I was just looking in my community, and I found something I didn't even know was there. So I'm going to have to take a hike to see the Oso Creek Ferry Trail now, apparently. There you go. <laughs> you were not kidding about this Roadside America website. Holy moly. <laughs> <laughs> it's worth going to check out just for the historical perspective. I think they actually still make a decent amount of money on advertising or something because uh, uh, it keeps chugging along, but uh, they sure haven't updated it. <laughs> Well, well, Greg Pierce, thank you so much for coming on the show. You and I have talked about coming, having you on the show for too long. I'm glad that we're able to to have you on, and and congratulations with the big transition with drafts to this subscription model and the 
and the success of the product. And I'm glad you can keep the lights on because man, I use this app every day and, <laughs> uh, and everybody go check it out. Um, is it agiletortoise.com is the main website now? Getdrafts.com be the best place to go. Oh, of course, getdrafts.com. Uh, there's some videos. You, you got you hired some clown to make videos for you. There's some videos there on it that can help you learn the app. But the um, but it's just a great app. And like I said, just download it. You know, open it up, write some text, and do some stuff with it. Like one of my favorites was I have this draft that sends. It's called Sparks Prime, and this is a really simple use of it. But I I love having it. Is where I can dictate a quick message and send it to all of my, my wife and my kids. And it takes like seconds. And I always feel like, you know, being in Southern California, when the earthquakes hit, the cellular network works for about 30 seconds and then it stops, you know? And so like, it's a great emergency contact app for me in that sense. I just open it up, dictator F I'm okay. I'm at whatever location and push a button and it gets out to my immediate family before whatever, you know, the network's uh, cellular goes down. Uh, just a silly, silly use, but it's it's nice to have it. That doesn't sound so silly. Yeah, but I also use it for like saying, "Hey, let's uh, let's all meet for dinner" or something like that. I use it all the time for just reaching out to the prime members. And you can do that in in the messages app. But you open the messages, then you've got to scroll through the list to find where's the last time you talked to all three of them, and make sure you don't put the wrong one that where you accidentally had one other person in it. And I don't know. It's just so much easier with drafts, but. Uh, I am, uh, I'm straying again, Stephen. I'm trying to not do that as much. Uh, uh, <laughs> thanks for coming to the show, Greg. Uh, thank you to our sponsors today. That's our friends over at one password, smile, Squarespace, and booze Allen. We are the Mac power users. You can find us at relay.fm slash MPU. Uh, you can find Greg over at getdrafts.com. Greg, do you, uh, do you tweet? I do at agile tortoise. All right. You can find Greg on Twitter at agile tortoise. And we'll see you next week.